how much work goes into preparing a sermon. It's a lot. And we've had several people over the course of the past several months from our body who have faithfully prepared sermons um, in addition to everything else they've had going on. And uh, we just wanted to say a special thank you to Steve, to Bill, and to Ron uh, for stepping up and filling in the gap there. Um, yeah, we're, you guys, you guys really blessed us as a church. And we are incredibly thankful for your leadership and, and, and serving in that way. Because, um, like I said, they were doing it in addition to everything else they had going on. And uh, that was a, a huge gap to fill. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you know, um, I struggled. Well, maybe before I get there, I, uh, I, I was really thankful this morning I was up here. And I, I don't actually get to watch many people worship when I'm here because I, I usually sit towards the front, especially now. I'll, I'll probably sit up towards the front even further. Um, but I got to... I hate to call people out, but I don't think I want. I got to watch Elijah worship this morning, and um, and sometimes you know folks look at kids and they say, "Oh, they're just so cute. That's so precious what they do." But Elijah worships. Not just he's not just cute because he's a kid. He is. You are cute. You're really great. Yeah, you're awesome. That's not it. Like he is a brother of mine that is worshiping my God with me. And I, I love to watch him, and I love to sit by him because he sings. He loves to sing, yes. And he sings, and, and not just because he likes to sing, but I truly believe because he loves our God. And he puts his hand in the air, um, not just because he sees other people doing it, but I truly believe because he loves our God and wants to worship. And that's not, not everybody has to put your hand in the air, not all of you have to sing out loud really loudly, that's not it, but it's the heart that's in it that is so evident. And that really blessed my spirit this morning. And I am really thankful uh, to be here and a part of a body um, where we just love to worship our God. And it's a real blessing. Um, you know, but I did struggle with, to know how to start this morning. I think um, last week was good and, and beautiful and quite meaningful to me as my first week here as, as your pastor. I got to meet with some of you, which was a lot of fun. Um, and last Sunday was awesome. We were just so thankful for that time to have our family here and have my father-in-law speak. was super special to me, um, and to, to share that with, with y'all was just really great. Um, but as I traveled throughout the course of this week, it was a little bit different than I thought. I, I think I felt a little bit different than I thought I, I might feel. It wasn't that it was bad. I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel like, oh man, I made the wrong choice. <laughs> like, it, was, it wasn't that. Um, it just wasn't what I, I think I, I expected. And honestly, I'm not even sure how I expected to feel but it, it just wasn't quite it. And um, I don't know, perhaps the reason, I think so maybe the reason kind of lies with sometimes when we get a new pastor or you become the new pastor, um, there's like this new, fresh, kind of clean slate feel that happens, right? Um, this person's not really, the, the new pastor hasn't like necessarily in, in the normal situation been previously connected to the congregation. So there's kind of like this new car experience. Like, they're, they're brand new, and like they, they have this new car smell, and you're checking out all their buttons. You, you, some of you like to try to press their buttons, right? right? But like, there's like all these new things to learn about them, and it's exciting, and it's fresh, and it's just, it's just kind of new. 
but I don't have all those new buttons and I don't have that new car smell because I'm kind of somewhat of a known factor, right? I, I've been around for like a period of time and, and you know my face and you know a little bit about me. And so I'm not quite as new as maybe most new pastors are. I mean, for sure, there are things that you don't yet know about me, right? So, for example, um, last week you started to experience the, the fact that I'm kind of an emotional guy. Like, I think I even cried during the service last week. And some of you are probably thinking to yourself, is that real? Like, is he really that emotional? Or is he just, like, putting on a show? Like, you're just not quite sure because you don't know me yet. Over the course of next year, you're going to find out that it's pretty genuine. Like, I'm just an emotional guy. But you don't know that yet because I'm still somewhat, somewhat new. And others of you probably don't yet know my background. You might, and, and, and because of that, you might be surprised um, to know, or maybe you didn't, didn't know, I don't know, um, that while I like grits, I love grits, I love grits, I love sweet tea, um, I use the contraction y'all a lot, a lot. Uh, some of you are shaking your heads, yes, and too, too much. Uh, you, you, you might not know, or you might know, that I pastored a church in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and if you, if you did know all that, you might not realize that I actually am from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Um, uh, see? Somebody didn't know that. See? From Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania originally. I graduated. I was born at Holy Spirit Hospital. I, uh, which is in Camp Hill. I graduated from CV High School, Cumberland Valley High School. I went to Bloomsburg University right here in Pennsylvania. And I went to seminary, well, probably less than an hour from here in Lebanon County, Evangelical School of Theology in Myerstown, Pennsylvania. I, um, I'm, I'm more of a local than maybe you, than maybe you realize. You also probably um, don't know that while I love people, like, I desperately love people. Actually, one of my favorite things to do is have coffee with someone and just kind of kind of chat over, over a cup of coffee because I also love coffee. And I'm a bit of a coffee snob, if I'm to admit it. But, like, I love coffee. And I love people. And I just love to hang out and get to know you, kind of what makes you tick, who you are. I love for you to get to know me. But what you might not know is that I'm also a severe introvert. Like... I'll go home, yeah, Maggie said, yes, he is. I'll go home after today, and I will sit on a chair or in the couch, and I will fall asleep for the entire afternoon because this drains me. It wears me out. My, my father-in-law always used to say uh, on Sunday afternoon, the anointing has worn off. Like, it's like, you know, I'm on here, but when I get home, I'm just, I'm not. So uh, there's a great deal to learn about me that you might not know. I, I'm still more familiar than most new pastors. I've been a regular attendee here, at, or a member here at LLC for almost a year and a half. Uh, I, most recently, I've led the youth group and served as a deacon here at the church. Um, my wife leads worship on, on, on Sunday mornings. She does all the prep for it. She teaches our, in our children's ministry on Sunday mornings. My kids are awesome. They're just fantastic. They've got great personalities. They're beautiful. You've gotten to see them and, and know them a little bit. So you kind of know... Some about us, but my, and because of that, my proverbial new smell has already worn off, and as a result, our experience of getting to know a new pastor is a little different than most. And my experience with you is a little different than for most pastors. Not only do I know you, most of you, and others of you I'm still really looking forward to getting to know first time or going a little bit deeper. 
I've also done this before. I don't know if you know this or not, but I served a church in Columbia, South Carolina for eight and a half years. Uh, and it, it was an incredible opportunity to lead that church. When I started, it was a congregation of about 40 middle, upper class white people that were worshiping in a building that existed in a neighborhood that was predominantly African American and um, uh, in a struggling community. Um, most of the people made $15,000 or less a year. Um, families made that. Most households were led by single moms. Um, and over the course of our time there, God saw fit to use me and my family to transition that church to a multi-ethnic, socioeconomically diverse church in the heart of Columbia, South Carolina. Um, but it, it was, that context is very different than Hershey. But I've been a pastor before. And um, churches, in some respects, are churches. And so this isn't, this isn't my first rodeo. And up until that, this point in my life, that was the single greatest ministry experience that I have ever had. All this to say, this situation is not the norm. Our getting to know each other is going to look a little different than some, but it's not wrong. My hope is that if you have questions about me or, or, or Dottie, that you'll come and ask us. That you'll um, say, hey, can we get together for a dinner at your house? Uh, some of you will feel very comfortable doing that. Or you could say, come over to our house. We would love to have you over, over there, and we would love to do that as well. Or ask me for a cup of coffee. Obviously, I... I love to do that. But we would just love to get to know you better and grow closer to you. I was talking with uh, Mickey earlier this week. Um, and we both shared um, how uh, some different things. But one of the things that we realized that we both had in common, that we both agreed on, is that you can't love someone that you don't know. Very difficult to do that. It's actually impossible. You must know a person's heart, and their desires, their experiences and expectations in order to really love them. And for them to love you, they need to know those things about you. This is, I think, in part why transitions like this are so hard sometimes. You have a new pastor come in, and, and you know we should be in a, a great relationship with each other because we're the body of Christ and we should love each other uh, but, but we don't know each other yet, so it makes it very difficult to love one another. Because you have to, to know someone to, to really love them. And that's really why I hope we can spend some time together, one-on-one or as families. Because I really want to be able to love you well. As your pastor, I want to know, not because I want to pry, but... I want to know kind of what maybe some of your struggles are. I, I want to know what some of your joys are. I want to know what really makes you happy, what's really important to you. I want to support you in those things. And I want to pray for you about those things. And I, I want to join you in those things. And as your pastor, I want you to know those things about me. I want you to know what makes me tick. I want you to know what I'm passionate about. So then you can pray for me and you can love me and care for me as well. I want to get to know you and for you to get to know me so that we can more fully love one another. You know, when I, when I preached the other week, I, 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 I kind of used Matthew um, 22 as, as my text. and um, talked in part about how we are to love our neighbors. That's like a command from Jesus. Like we're supposed to love each other, right? Um, and I want that for us. God wants that for us. What we also learned during our time together as I was preaching, as we were looking at those verses... 
that we can't have that, we can't have that love for one another until we first fulfill the greatest commandment, the first commandment that he gave. And that, that in Matthew 22, verse 37, was this. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Because, he says, it is the first and the greatest commandment. We have to do that first. And then once we do that, then we can more properly love each other. So as I prayed about where I'm to begin preaching, you know, it's, the Bible's big. There's a lot to talk about in there. I just started asking, Lord, Lord, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to look at as we begin our time together? And God put, put this principle on my heart. He said, John, and he didn't like say it, say it, but he said to me, I want, I want you to get to know me, not just you as the pastor, but together as the church. I want you to take some time to, to get to know me, to learn what my heart is and what my expectations are and my passions are and, and how, how I feel about you and, and how I feel about living legacy and how I feel about my church in, in general. And I think the reason he said that is because we can't really love what we don't know. We can't really love God unless we know who he is and what he wants and what makes him tick. And so I started praying, okay, Lord, well, we can kind of get that from anywhere in the Bible, and, he's, and that's true. And, but he, he took me to the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to take a couple months, actually, and we're going to work through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to take some time to, in there to, to, to see his heart and, and learn his expectations and, and commandments for, for us as followers of Christ and, and, and just kind of learn who he is by, by studying some of Jesus' core teaching. One Bible teacher actually has described the Sermon on the Mount this way. He said, Jesus summons those in the Sermon on the Mount who would be his followers to radical devotion and radical dependence on God. His followers must be meek, must not retaliate, must go beyond the letter's law to its spirit, must do what is right when only God is looking, must depend on God for their needs and pursue his interests rather than their own, and must leave spiritual measurements of others' hearts to God. In short, true people of the kingdom live for God, not for themselves. As we travel through this text, of the many things we will glean, the three that I think are most important for us are these. One, I hope and pray that we grow in our understanding of God. We learn his heart, his mind, his desires, expectations, his love, his passion for us. We will know him better as a result of traveling through this time together. Two, our affection for him will grow. As we see how beautiful he is, we understand how much he loves us. We see how powerful and mighty he is. We will fall more in love with him. And three, as a congregation, I hope and pray that we will become more unified in him as we travel this journey together. And in unison, learn more about and grow closer to the one who has made our family, the family of Christ, possible. He is the tie that binds. So naturally, as our connection to him grows, our connection to one another should also grow with it. 
So next week, we are going to start traveling through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. But today, I want to take the rest of our time, actually I have a good bit left, and examine a few verses that precede the Sermon on the Mount. Excuse me for one moment. Look at the, some verses that precede it um, in, in Matthew chapter 4. And um, there's a lot of reasons for this, but I think the, one of the primary reasons I, I, I want to do this is I think context is really important when we study the Bible. We were talking about this in youth group this morning. We're traveling through Revelation. And some of you have just done that in your Sunday morning Bible study. The youth are now doing it. And it's going to take us months and months and months to get through Revelation, which is okay. It's good. But Revelation, if you don't understand some of the context, you don't get the, the, the fuller meaning of, of what God is trying to communicate to us and to, to even the first century church. You have to understand where it was written, to whom it was written, all these pieces uh, of the first century context to get the fuller meaning out of it. And the same thing is true here with the Sermon on the Mount. And we're not going to be able to cover all the context, but I thought if we could at least like look at the preceding verses and look at who Jesus called to be his disciples and look at some of the first people to whom Jesus ministered, we might better understand like our worth, our value, and also the, the context in which he is delivering the Sermon on the Mount and the, the people he's giving it to and be able to better put ourselves in their shoes as we go through it so that we could better understand who he is and we could fall more in love with him and be more united together. So today I want to look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll also be on the screen here, I'm pretty sure. So if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. If you don't have a Bible, like period, like you just don't own one, we would love for you to have one. And you could see me after the service. Um, you could see just, well, anybody that's sitting around you, as long as you're not coming with them if you're new. Like anybody else, you could ask, and we would be happy to get you a Bible. We want you to have a Bible. Um, but Matthew chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 18. And um, first section, we're going to go work through to verse 22. And this is what, what Matthew writes. He says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. These are four of the first disciples that Jesus called. Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And all of them are fishermen. Now, we probably don't know a whole lot about what it meant to be a first century fisherman. Like, maybe you do. I, I didn't when I started but um, first century fishermen were not, they, they weren't poverty stricken. It was actually a very good job to have. And these guys seemed to be doing really well because they, they, they seemed to own their own boats, like they owned their own business. So these guys like, probably weren't like, financially strapped. They were probably doing okay for themselves. They weren't like the wealthiest of the wealthiest. They also weren't the most struggling of the struggling. They were somewhere in between, maybe like today's kind of middle 
middle class. They could take care of themselves and provide for themselves. So they, they were doing okay. They weren't rich. They weren't poor. But they also weren't incredibly well-trained either. They weren't the Bible scholars of their day. They weren't the theologian or the seminarians. They, they weren't the pastors, the preachers, the teachers. They were fishermen. They, went up, they got up early every morning, and they got in their boat, and they grabbed their nets, and they went out and cast it out into a sea, and they threw out their nets, and they caught dirty, smelly, stinky fish for a living. That's what they did. That's what they did. They weren't orators. They weren't trained to speak with eloquence. And, and, and to be incredibly dynamic when they did that, you know, they, they were just kind of like workers. They went out and caught fish. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls another disciple, who is actually the disciple who wrote this book of Matthew. His also, name is also Levi. Um, and he's probably of the same like, social strata as these fishermen. He's probably, he's not, not poor. He's not like, Super, super wealthy. He might have been a little more wealthy than they were. Um, But he's probably not very well respected. Simon, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they were probably pretty well respected in their town. It was an honorable way to make a living to be a fisherman. But to be a tax collector was not so honorable. In fact, he was likely despised by, by many people in the community being a tax collector. Not many of us today really love tax collectors. Um, I, I don't know about you. We don't like giving our money away. You know, it, it's just a, it's a struggle to do that. Um, but we don't like most of us don't like personally um, disregard or dislike the tax collector himself or herself. It's like the office we're not so wild about, but the person like, we could take them or leave them, right? They're not they're not they're probably not great. They're not the worst, you know. But but they're okay. However, in, in Jesus's day, it was a little different. Most Jews, like us, probably didn't like giving their money away in taxes, but they really didn't like giving it away to Rome. They, they just didn't really like Rome at all, this, this, this uh, government that, that was over them and who kind of come over and taken over some of their life. They, they really didn't want them there. They didn't like them. They didn't like their authority. In fact, they would prefer them not to be there at all. And the tax collector was somewhat of a representative of, of Rome, but on top of that, they just didn't like the tax collector's Period. See, because tax collectors could take, they took the government's money from the people, but it was kind of like an understood that tax collectors could take even more than they, the government needed from the people. And as long as they got the government's money, if they took a little bit extra, or even maybe sometimes a lot extra, the government would just kind of look the other way. And so many tax collectors who were immoral, probably Levi, took way more than they should have just to line their own pockets, to make themselves more comfortable at the expense of the people. And so as a result, they were despised. And we know this because in Luke chapter 5, Levi has, or Matthew has Jesus over to his house for a meal to, to kind of celebrate. After Jesus has called him to be a disciple and, and he has... Jesus and his followers and some of the religious elite and other people over for a meal at at his house. And and some of those religious elite um, 
the, the scripture tells us in, in the ESV, in, in Luke 5, it says that the, the, those, those religious people grumble, and the NIV actually says that they complained to Jesus' disciples. And, and they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And they don't say it in a nice, polite, sweet voice, like our, our, our wives or kids or sometimes us as men would do. They don't say, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? It was like, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors got no love because of who they were. They were sometimes despicable people. And then there was this other disciple who's not listed here in our text from Matthew today, in Matthew chapter 4, but this guy named Simon the Zealot. And we don't know a whole lot about Simon the Zealot, but it is believed that he was some type of activist. Like He, he, he had a, just a fire inside of him, and he needed to be about something. And we, we've seen activists today, particularly in our in our climate, you know, our, our, sometimes our political climate, other times in social climate, but there are activists for everything. And they carry picket signs, and they go and, and picket places, and make their voice known. They take polls, and, 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 and get people to sign things, and, and it, it, they, they just have a passion for something. And this was Simon, and his was likely some type of political, religious kind of, uh, of activism that he was about. Maybe getting Rome out of, out of Israel. We, we don't know for sure, but, but he was some type of fanatic, some type of, of activist. He would have been the first one to, to join the picket line or, or sign a petition or, or, or join a chant. There's no indication that he, any type, he had any type of political or social stature, but we kind of get the impression that he may have been something of like a hothead. Like he just, he was driven by stuff. He wanted his voice to be heard. So as we're looking at the first four, we look at Levi, we look at Simon, we have an activist, a couple of fishermen, a tax collector, and several others. It sounds like a joke, right? There was an activist, a couple of fishermen, a tax collector. But we have these guys. None of them were the cream of the crop or all-star players of their time. Most certainly, none of them were theologically inclined like religiously inclined. And we know this because if they were, they wouldn't have been fishermen, tax collectors, or zealots. If they were, they would have been training, much like Paul, under a rabbi. They would have been in school, learning. Or they, at this point, maybe would have become rabbis themselves and been out training others. But they weren't doing that. They were fishing. They were collecting taxes. They actually, they weren't guys like me. They were guys, just regular guys. They were just regular people. Not that, don't hear what I'm not saying. That sounded really bad. <laughs> let, me, let me rephrase that. They were just like people like us. They weren't the pastors and the teachers and the preachers of their time. They were people who went into a nine-to-five every single day, clocked in and clocked out. They grunted it out every day. They smelled every day. They worked hard for their living every day. Whether they did it in a good way or a bad way, they did it. They weren't supposed to be church leaders from a worldly standard. 
In fact, if you had been asked to go to a town and, and out of the town's population in first century Israel, choose the most promising people for Jesus' ministry, these guys would not have been your first choice. In fact, they would have been way down the line. You know, sometimes I think that God is limited, if that's even possible, not by His ability, but by our unwillingness to consider the possibility that maybe, just maybe, God wants to use somebody like us. We come up with all sorts of excuses as to why it couldn't be us that God wants to use. I don't have the training. I'm not popular. I don't speak well. I get nervous in front of people. I, I can't teach. I don't read that well. I've done some pretty awful stuff. Sometimes we, we even say things like, oh, the pastor would be better at doing that than I would. The truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, I will never be better than you at something God is calling you to do. Say that again. I will never be better than you at something God is calling you to do. He calls you because you are the right person for the job. It doesn't matter what the world says. What matters is His calling. Because way in advance of your life ever beginning, before you were ever a thought in your parents' minds, before they were ever born, and before your grandparents were ever born, before your great-grandparents were ever born, God intentionally prepared, Ephesians 2.10 says, good works in advance for you to do. He prepares them for you and He prepares them for me. But mine aren't better done by you and yours aren't better done by me. I love this passage in, 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 in Matthew chapter 4 because it reminds me that God, in spite of our frailties, insufficiencies, and disappointment, desires to use all of us. Just like He wanted to use Simon Peter the fisherman, Levi the tax collector, and Simon the zealot, He wants to use you the printer. You the stay-at-home mom. You the retired teacher. To accomplish His plans in this place. I also want to briefly make note of the next passage Matthew records. And um, it's verses 23 to 25. And Matthew goes on to record this. He says, Then Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So Jesus takes those he just called, his disciples he just called, and he goes on and teaches. And he starts teaching in these synagogues, these gatherings of Jews all throughout the land. And as he's, he's, he's teaching these, these gatherings of, of Jewish people, men and women and children, something very 
interesting starts to happen. People start hearing about him. The word quickly spreads all over. And I mean all over. You get that sense from the passage there. These places all over. And they start bringing him people. But not just the clean people. Not just the good-looking people. Not just the healthy people. Not just those who have it all together. They bring him the people that no one else knows what to do with. That no one can fix. People who are dirty and grimy and contagious. And, and just weird. Unexplainably weird. The demon possessed. And, and they, they bring them to, to him. I, I mean, think about some of these people they're bringing. Legion was a demon, a man that was possessed by demons in, in, in the scripture, in the gospels. And, and he was doing crazy things. He's like cutting himself, right? This guy's cutting himself. And, and, and they chain him up and he literally breaks the chains. He's like this crazy, crazy man that nobody knows what to do. So they just send him out in the middle of nowhere. And they're bringing people like Legion to Jesus. And, you know, I think about in modern day times, you know, and I walk around town and I see somebody wearing one of those, those masks over their face, right? I don't know why it's there. I, I, it's probably there to, to protect them from things that are coming into them. But, but I immediately, if they're coming close to me, I, I kind of do one of these. Does anybody ever do? I mean, if I'm just to be honest, like, I'm not perfect. Uh, but I, I do one of these because I think there's something wrong with them. So wrong. They're wearing a mask. And whatever they got, I don't really think I want that. And so I take that step, right? Those are the people in much, and people in much, much, much worse situations that are being brought to Jesus. People probably with leprosy. Like literally, they're having noses and ears and appendages fall off their body. That's how sick they are. The lepers were actually cast out of, of towns. They were put way outside of towns because it was believed to be very contagious and nobody wanted to get it. So they just threw them out of the town and kind of just didn't really deal with them. Didn't want to take a chance on them. And this is what's so amazing about Jesus. The people that scare me. That cause me to want to hide. Or the people that I don't know what to do with. Society doesn't know what to do with. Those are the people he spends time with. When they're brought to him, he doesn't step back. You know what Jesus does? He touches them. He loves them. He pursues them. He, he wants to be with them. I mean, wrap your minds around that for a moment. He wants to be with the demon possessed. He wants to be with those who have leprosy. He wants to be with those that nobody else wants. Those are the people he pursues. He healed people in pain, people who were paralyzed. He... And this tells me so it tells us so much about Jesus. But but there are two things that I specifically want to highlight before we, we close today. First, we learn from this portion of the text when these people are being brought to Jesus and he's, he's, he's healing them that, that He has the power to do what no one else can do. People are being brought to Him from all over everywhere at this point. They're, they're literally carrying 
paralytic people that can't walk themselves miles and miles and miles and miles because He's the only one, the only one who can heal them. And they're willing to do it because He has the power. He alone can do it. He was able to do what no one else in the known world could do. And so they didn't even have a doubt about what they should do. They brought him. They brought demon-possessed. Think about getting a demon-possessed person from one place in the country to another. I mean, I just don't even know how you begin to do that. But they did it. They did it. Because they knew that Jesus was powerful enough to overcome. And this brings me hope. I hope this brings you hope. Because the things that that I can't handle on my own, the things that you can't handle on your own, the things that no person on this earth can handle, God can. And He doesn't even break a sweat doing it. The second thing that I think we need to highlight here from, from this section is that Jesus didn't just tolerate the presence of the socially marginalized but he wanted to be with those no one else wanted to be around. He's with the lepers. He's with the demon-possessed. But also, if we were to skip back up into that last section and think about the, the people Jesus called and then go back over to, to Luke 5 where, where um, Matthew was called, where Levi was called, he actually he was a person that nobody wanted to be around. That tax collector... I mean, the Pharisees even said, you know, why, why are you hanging out with people like this, these tax collectors and sinners? Nobody wanted to be around them. But Jesus did. And this offers me hope, because while I may not look like a leper, spiritually, on my own, I'm even worse off. I am... Um, having a conversation this week and I, I think we don't in America we can uh, we, we, we're able to cover over our sin right and make it okay we're able to take care of ourselves we're you know if we can put on a good show because of our, our money and our privilege our wealth um, and so people don't really a lot of times know how bad things are with us so we're able to cover it up we're also able to, to fix things. We don't, like if somebody gets sick, we go to the doctor. Someone needs food, we go and buy it for them. We can take care of everything. You go to a third world country, that's just not the case, right? Somebody gets sick, their only recourse is to pray. Somebody needs food, can't run to Giant at midnight and get them something. Your only recourse is to pray. And um, I think if we're to be honest with one another, if we could just peel back some of the, the covering that we use to, to hide what's really in, on our own, without Jesus, on our own inside of us, it looks pretty awful. It's just not pretty. It's much worse than a leper or a demoniac, at least equivalent. And um, yet... Jesus wants you. He wants you. 
He doesn't want you to fix yourself. He doesn't want you to clean yourself up and get ready for him. He just wants you right now, right here, in this moment. He wants you. He doesn't want you to try to fix yourself because, as we just mentioned, we are powerless to do that. That's why everybody was bringing all their sick people to Jesus. They, they couldn't fix them, but they knew Jesus could. And the same is true of us. We can't fix ourselves and we can't fix each other, but you know what? Jesus can. I love this passage. It reminds me of that. You know, as we study the Sermon on the Mount, at times you're going to say to yourself, I am so bad at this. I've tried and tried and tried to do this. And I don't know what your this is, but it's going to be one of the things that we talk about. I just can't get it. I can't do it. I, I, I just keep failing. And at that moment, I want you to remember that Jesus used fishermen, zealots, and tax collectors. People who had, that no one thought were spiritually useful. And he healed diseases and, and demon possession that no one else could heal. So if He can do that for them, He can do this for you. And at some point during our time together, you might also say to yourself, I am so messed up. So messed up. People don't even know it, but I'm so messed up that there's no way that Jesus could even ever want me or would ever want to be around me. At that moment, I want you to remember that He hung out with tax collectors, Lepers, disease-ridden people, and demoniacs. And as he himself stated, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but it is the sick. And I have not come, and he also said, I have not come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. Remember in those moments of self-doubt that he not only will tolerate you, but he desires to be with you, warts and all. And if you will allow him, he will heal you and make you useful for his glory and you are good. Last night, my family um, was listening to the soundtrack from The Greatest Showman. And it's one of my favorite recent movies. It's, it's, it's just really, really good. And I, I think um, our entire family loves the soundtrack. But I, I think more than the soundtrack, I just love the storyline. You know, if you haven't seen it, it's an adaptation of the life of P.T. Barnum. He, he was one of the co-creators of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. And um, according to the movie, Mr. Barnum grows up in poverty with little or no chance of making anything of his life, and he ends up creating the circus, which is wildly successful. But along the way, he happens upon the idea of taking the marginalized and even scary persons of society and giving them purpose by creating a show that does something extraordinary. And that was the circus. At one point in the movie, the performers in his show, which included a bearded woman, a fully tattooed man, a very large man, an incredibly tall man, a wolf man, and many other just eccentric people are rejected by Barnum once he becomes like successful and other socialites of, of the town. And as they're kind of shunned by the elite, they struggle with acceptance and, and, and not being accepted and, and, and being shunned until it hits them that they have value too that they have purpose, that they have something to offer, and that they can't let the world determine their value. And at that moment, they sing a song. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to... You'll be thankful once you hear me sing uh, that I don't do that. But the lyrics go, go like this. It says, I am not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say, 
No one will love you as you are. But I won't let them break me down to dust. I know there's a better place for us. For we are glorious. When the sharpest words want to cut me down, I'm going to set a flood. I'm going to drown them out. I am brave. I am bruised. I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. Look out, because here I come. And I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. Another round of bullets hits my skin. will fire away, because today, I won't let them shame... Excuse me. I won't let the shame sink in. We are bursting through the barricades and reaching for the sun. We are warriors. Yeah, that's what we've become. Yeah, that's what we've become. You know, um, my, my friends, the world may do to us what the socialites in Barnum did to the, did to the performers of his circus. It's going to try to tell you that you're not worth anything because of how you look or where you've been, what you've done. You're not going to amount to anything. That Actually, you have very little worth. And your sin and the evil one is going to try to convince you that you have nothing to offer. And I guess that's actually true. You don't have anything to offer and you are of very little value. But brothers and sisters... It doesn't matter to God. He created you. He loves you. He wants you. And if we will surrender to Him in our brokenness, if we will submit to Him, then He will raise us up. It doesn't matter what you can do. All that matters at that moment is what He can do. And what He can do is infinitely more, the Scripture says, than all we can ask or imagine. He is bigger than even our largest dreams. Brothers and sisters, God is not done with us. I know it has been a rough year and a half for some of you. And I know in some respects we've kind of just been, I think, kind of wandering a little bit and we haven't found our footing and um, we've made some mistakes along the way. And we've hurt each other sometimes. And I think from a worldly perspective, it kind of looks like we don't have a whole lot to offer. Like, like we're the performers in Barnum's show. We're like that bearded woman or that really large man or the wolf man. Like we're kind of crazy and, and messed up. And, and, and to the world, it might look like we're about to fail. But, but brothers and sisters, I don't believe that is the case. I believe the Scripture tells us that this Scripture this morning encourages us that we are in Him more than we are on our own. That with Him, all things are possible. And, and, I, and I actually believe that as, as good as some things have been in the past for LLC, and I'm not just talking the past year and a half, I'm, I'm talking over the, the entire existence of LLC, as, as good as it is, it, it, I really sense a kind of thing that it's not as good as it's going to be. I mentioned earlier that the greatest ministry of my experience of my life, uh, ministry experience of my life up until this point was by our last church in South Carolina. And I intentionally said up until this point. I can't tell you how great 
that experience was. It was way more than I ever imagined it could possibly be. I saw God do things there that I actually didn't think he was able to do. But as good as that was, I don't think it is as good as this is going to be. I want you to know as your pastor, I'm not living in the past. I'm not holding on to what was. And I'm, I'm not comparing. I'm not really uh, not saying to myself, this isn't going to measure up. Right now, you are my first choice. I want to be nowhere other than right here with all of you. Because as messed up as we are on our own, and as much as the world says we have nothing to offer, God says in him that is just not the case. And we are going to do great things in this community and beyond for God's glory, and it is going to be for our good as well. And I am so excited to be on this journey with a bunch of ragtag misfits like you. (laughs) That's right. Because together, we are going to accomplish so much with the Lord and for Him. So, um, I love you guys. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be in this tradition of the apostles and the disciples and the demon-possessed and those with leprosy and the sick and the ill. I'm excited to see what God is going to do in us and through us in the years to come. The best is certainly yet to come. Will you pray with me? Father, um, we thank you this morning uh, for that promise that while we on our own have very little offer in you, we have, um, well, really, the sky is the limit. You are the limit. So, Lord, but we also know that um, in order for that to be the case, we can't be in control that we have to, as we, we study this morning in, in Bible study, lay our crowns at your feet just as those elders did. We have to submit ourselves to you in humility and allow you to be everything that we can't be. And we would just humbly ask that just as the disciples did, Lord, that we could, we could do that, that you would somehow free us from our sin that, that, that entangles us and, and, and that, Father, we would be freed um, in, in you, Jesus, uh, to be able to, to live lives of victory and purpose and, and, and that we could do things of, of value and worth, not just for this world, but, but of eternal value and worth that would make you look good and would be to the benefit of those who are lost and hurting and, and for the good of the church as well. So Lord, we, we do that now as a body. We are yours. Please use us. Please fix us. Please empower us. And let yourself be glorified through us. In Jesus' name, amen.